welcome to this week's recording of the Worcester News, brought to you by the Equipment Service for the Blind. Our service is free, but if you wish to send a donation or any comments that you have regarding our service, we always love to hear from you. And I would like to thank um, Barbara Moss and Sandra Clinton, who've both sent us donations recently. Thank you very much. They are very much appreciated. I am Sally Rowe and my husband Ian will be reading with me and Alex Gwynn is our engineer and Carol Hartle, our team administrator. Uh, We are reading news for the week beginning Friday the 2nd of July until and including Thursday the 8th of July. We're going to include the headline stories from each day and then a selection of articles of general interest, some historical items and highlights from the sports pages. And we will end our contribution with the obituaries. This week, uh, sunrise is at 4.58am and sunset is 9.28pm. Our thought for the week is taken from Acts 9, verses 3 to 6. As Saul neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Ian will now give you some useful phone numbers and what's on in the area as the restrictions are gradually lifting. Uh, There are no birthdays this week, so over to Ian. Thank you. Uh, Firstly, the telephone number for the service here in Wilds Lane is 01905 767766. A police non-emergency number is 101. The number for the Worcester Hub is 01905 765 765. Samaritans is on 116123. Morven Theatres are on 01684892277. And non-emergency helpline is treble one. Uh, Analysis for some items uh, for events on. Uh, Firstly, the prestigious Three Choirs Festival will be able to take place thanks to a ban on singing being lifted just in time. The annual music meetings of the Three Choirs of Gloucester, Worcester and Hereford have been taking place since 1729 but members were devastated when the festival was put in jeopardy due to last-minute coronavirus restrictions back in May. As a result, the choir was forced to practice outside. However, on Monday, Prime Minister Boris Johnson confirmed the indoor gathering rule and the ban on singing would be lifted from July 19th, meaning the festival can go ahead. Member of the Three Choirs Chorus and Green City Councillor Marjorie Bissett said, It has been a fraught few weeks for all involved in planning and performing. I am looking forward immensely to singing some enthralling music in our great cathedral.
The news has been welcomed by MP Robin Walker. The festival will take place in Worcester from Saturday, July 24th to Sunday, August the 1st, with an exciting programme of choral and orchestral concerts, recitals, talks, family events, cathedral services, theatre, exhibitions and more. Worcester artist Nicola Curry has been appointed artist-in-residence at Spetchley Park Gardens. Her first exhibition of new work takes place at Spetchley Park Gardens this weekend and Sunday, July 10th and 11th. Nicola said, Spetchley Gardens have provided a constant source of inspiration for my work as an artist and some of my most beautiful popular oil paintings began their life there. Spetchley has been home to the Barclay family for more than 400 years and successive generations of the family have lovingly collected rare plants, shrubs and trees from around the world. I hope to be focusing on some of these subjects in future paintings during the year. After 15 months chained to Netflix, YouTube or regular broadcast TV, it brings enormous pleasure to witness the triumphant return of real-world theatre. Worcester Repertory Theatre's production of Elsie and Norm's Macbeth is a comic retelling of one of Shakespeare's bloodiest tragedies, where an older married couple from Yorkshire rip up the bard's script and rewrite it themselves. You see, Shakespeare's jokes aren't funny, according to Norm, a Leeds lad who presumably prefer Eric and Ernie to Falstaff and Bottom. Slimming down the cast list and hacking up the prose, Elsie and Norm turn Macbeth from a bleak drama set on the blasted heaths of Scotland into a suburban chuckle fest amid the herbaceous borders of Ilkley. Performed as a two-person show by Carrie Rawlings and Ian Parkin, this is a perfectly pitched blend of true Shakespeare and light-hearted laughs. The Lady Macbeth, unsex me here speech, for example, appears unchanged, at least until a prudish norm bursts in to chide Elsie for using unladylike language. It's a wonderful way to bring the curtain back up on the world of theatre, giving us all a reminder of what we love about the performing arts. With this show, Worcester Rep joined a select club, that of the theatre companies to have performed Shakespeare during an actual plague. Now that the worst of the plague seems to have passed, get yourself to the commandery for a taste of what we've all been missing. Elsie and Norm's Macbeth continues until Sunday, July the 11th. And now back over to Sally to start the headline stories. Friday, July the 2nd, suffocating. The victim of horrific domestic abuse by a former model who threatened to slit her throat is bravely speaking out to encourage women to use Claire's law. The victim who has lifelong anonymity under the law, says Ryan Davis-Hall used controlling and suffocating behaviour and threatened to slit her throat twice during a four-month-long relationship. 
Davis Hall admitted three counts of a fray, engaging in a controlling coercive behaviour in an intimate family relationship and sending a letter, communication, article conveying a threatening message and was jailed for 17 months when he appeared at Worcester Crown Court last month. The victim said she wanted to warn other women about the 27-year-old who is formerly of Worcester and who lived in Malvern when he carried out the abuse. She added many would recognise Davis Hall of Mass House Plaza, Birmingham, as he worked as a model, amassing more than 50,000 social media followers. The victim said she started speaking to him in July last year with the relationship quickly getting very intense and then she tried to leave him, he threatened her life and to kill himself. The victim said, I will put up with months of controlling and suffocating behaviour. I couldn't go out with my friends, I couldn't talk to my friends or family without him flipping out on me. He would put me down on what I was wearing, I couldn't wear hats, only red lipstick. He would want to know where I was, who I was with, what I was wearing, who I was talking to, 24-7. He came to me with a samurai sword on one occasion. His flatmate managed to hold Ryan away from me. He threatened to slit my throat twice and said he was coming to my house to kill me because I wouldn't take him back. He would call and text constantly. The daily gaslighting abuse, controlling and manipulation got too much. I was losing weight ending up leaving my job and now have to have treatment for PTSD. I used to think there was a good person in him, but Ryan switches very quickly. It's easy for others to say, why don't you just leave? I used to be that person who said that. But it's not like that when they are threatening to kill themselves. If it were that easy, I would have done so. The victim said she wished she would have known about Claire's law at the start of their relationship, which would have revealed his dark past and is now encouraging others to use it. The law, named after Claire Wood, who was strangled by partner George Appleton, who had a history of domestic abuse, allows a person, a concerned family member or friend, to ask police by phoning 101 to check if a partner has a history of abusive or controlling behaviour. Women need to be made aware of this and of the red flags in relationships early on, the victim said. They need to be made aware of Claire's law and women's aid because I didn't know about them until it was too late. I would have found out about his history of violence against women. It would be good to allow all women to know this is here for them. The victim added that speaking to the police had been scary but was glad that she had as he has now been held accountable and it would help protect other women. The victim added, Standing up and speaking out against your abuser is scary. It's a very difficult thing to do and it will take everything out of you. But if I hadn't have spoken to the police when they called me and spoke the truth, then it would have carried on and it would have ended up a lot worse for someone else. School Covid Bubbles Collapse The number of staff and students off school in Worcestershire because of COVID has more than doubled in the last week. A total of 3,422 staff and pupils are currently self-isolating from 40 of Worcestershire schools as of Thursday, July 1st, Worcestershire County Council said. This equates to 71 times that a bubble or partial bubble has been forced to collapse in the county due either to a positive coronavirus test result 
or as a precautionary measure because a case is suspected. The news comes as government ministers reveal plans to put a stop to pupils and staff automatically isolating after coming into contact with a positive COVID case when schools return in September. This is more than double the 1,632 staff and students at 25 of Worcestershire schools that were isolating last Friday. Earlier this week, the Department for Education said ministers had written to secondary schools asking them to prepare to potentially replace isolation rules with testing. On Thursday, Education Secretary Gavin Williamson said he wanted the school bubble system removed as soon as possible as increasing numbers of pupils are being sent home. The system could come to an end on July the 19th when the majority of lockdown restrictions are still expected to be lifted, meaning it would only be scrapped for a few days before the end of the school term. West Worcestershire MP Harriet Baldwin supports plans for schools to return to normal on July the 19th, including the scrapping of bubbles and an end to self-isolating. The vaccination programme continues to move fast to give protection to many more people, and I continue to urge everyone over 18 to come forward to get your jabs as soon as you are asked, she said. This enhanced level of protection means that we will be able to get back to doing many more of our usual activities this summer. I also hope that with everyone over 18 vaccinated by the return to school in September, we will not have to keep school children in bubbles and can instead use more familiar ways of dealing with staff and pupil sickness absences as we learn to live with this virus. Of course, I want to thank teachers, parents and pupils for the incredible sacrifices they have made this year and hope they get some rest and fun this summer away from the school setting. A spokesperson for Worcestershire County Council said, We are working with our schools and settings to ensure they are following current government guidelines and we are working closely with Public Health England to keep advice and guidance under review. We're committed to supporting schools to ensure capacity to test if this becomes a requirement, as we did in March, for the wider reopening of schools. Ahead of the new school year starting in September, we will work locally and nationally to support schools in implementing any new measures while utilising public health data to ensure that we are able to make informed decisions and guidance for schools. We will make sure that any changes that will affect the current COVID measures for schools are effectively planned and do not negatively impact on the education of our children. Any increase in cases in the county is a cause for concern. We monitor and assess the COVID-19 cases each day and continue to follow our outbreak control plan, which has tailored measures and actions for individual settings where needed. The rising figures are a stark reminder to us all not to be complacent. Monday, July the 5th. Completely devastated. A woman left paralysed after being mowed down by an elderly woman at a farm shop says her life had been completely devastated. 
Dawn Walters, aged 50, was with a friend at Broomfield's farm shop in Holt Heath when she was struck by the reversing vehicle. Miss Walters was paralysed by the incident on August 31, 2020 and is now urging older drivers to evaluate whether they can still safely operate a car. The driver of the car, Pauline Haynes, 87, pleaded guilty to two counts of causing serious injury by dangerous driving. She was sentenced on Thursday at Birmingham Crown Court to two years' imprisonment, suspended for two years on each count, and ten years, considered to be life, ban on driving. In considering the appropriate sentence, His Honour Justice Hurst looked at the role of the phenomenon of sudden unintended acceleration, an unintended, unexpected, uncontrolled acceleration of a vehicle often caused by driver error and pedal misapplication and noted that this is common with elderly drivers. Miss Walters said her life has been changed completely by the collision and she is now unable to do many of the things she loved, including gardening, cooking, travelling, leading a local Duke of Edinburgh group, attending the local theatre and church and socialising with friends. She has been unable to return to her beloved job as a chemistry teacher due to the loss of dexterity which makes performing complex experiments impossible. She said, My life has been completely devastated by what happened and it will never be the same again. My family are having to leave our home which we have lived in for over 20 years because it is no longer accessible to me. My career has been ended and my social life is now very difficult. She continued, I strongly believe that older people should consider whether they are capable of driving. The driver who hit me never tried to stop. She was totally out of control and acted negligently by choosing to drive. To me, this is comparable to drink driving, because older people who are no longer able to drive safely are choosing to risk other lives for personal convenience. To my mind, the fact that she was confused by which pedal to use and panicked, which is apparently common amongst elderly drivers, is no excuse. Age should not be considered a mitigating factor when it was clearly the cause. My life has been ruined because the driver didn't recognise her inability to act in a safe manner when in charge of a lethal weapon. This has got to change. Also hit by the vehicle was Droitwich mum Nicola Weir, and her son Kyle, nine. Kyle escaped with minor injuries, but Ms Weir was airlifted to hospital with a broken pelvis and a bleed on the brain. Bethany Sanders, solicitor from Lee Day, who represents Ms Walters in her civil claim, said, This incident was a tragedy, where my client and her whole family and their lives shattered as a result of the defendant's dangerous driving. Drivers should ensure they are competent and able to drive their vehicle safely before getting behind the wheel. These incidents are avoidable if people appreciate the responsibility they have on the roads and make necessary decisions to cease driving when no longer fit to do so. Tuesday, July the 6th. Readers back the ending of rules. Worcester News readers have narrowly backed Boris Johnson tearing up England's coronavirus regulations at the next stage of the roadmap. 
The Prime Minister has gambled on trusting the public's judgment and the protection offered by vaccines as he scrapped mandatory mask wearing and lifted social distancing requirements. The so-called Freedom Day is due on July the 19th, with a decision on whether or not to go ahead being taken a week earlier. Officials acknowledge that COVID-19 cases and deaths will continue to increase, albeit at a much lower level than before the vaccination programme. But it was now necessary to find a new way to live with the virus. Under the Prime Minister's plan for step four of the roadmap, there will be no limits on social contact, meaning the end of the orders such as rule of six and restrictions on guests at weddings and mourners at funerals. Legal requirements to wear face coverings will be lifted, although guidance will suggest people might choose to do so in enclosed and crowded places. All remaining businesses will be able to reopen, including nightclubs, while capacity caps will be lifted and bars and restaurants will no longer be restricted to table service. The government will no longer instruct people to work from home. The one metre plus rule on social distancing will be lifted except in specific circumstances, such as at the border, where guidance will remain to keep passengers from red and amber list countries from mingling with other travellers. The limit on named care home visitors will be lifted, but infection control measures will remain in place. There will be no compulsory use of COVID status certification, so-called domestic vaccine passports, although firms will be able to voluntarily use the system. The gap between vaccine doses for under 40s will be reduced from 12 weeks to 8, meaning that all adults will have had the opportunity to be double jabbed by mid-September. A Facebook poll of readers asked, should restrictions be lifted and Freedom Day go ahead on July the 19th? And ahead of the Prime Minister's announcement was being led by 58% saying yes to 42% saying no. We also asked readers whether, if masks become optional, they would wear them and where they would. Richard Morris said, no, unless it's in a clinical environment, happy to wear one at doctors or in hospital. Lisa Porter said, yes, in busy inside places. Jane Frost said, I am sure I will still be required to wear it at work, but after that, I can't wait to go without. Carol Banks added, there wasn't much personal responsibility when we were in town on Saturday. Worcester MP Robin Walker said after July the 19th he would continue to wear a mask on public transport but not in shops unless asked to. Just because something isn't compulsory doesn't mean you shouldn't consider not using it. But it is about the right balance. You don't have the government telling you what to do in your everyday lives all the time, the MP said. Asked whether he supported the lockdown restrictions being lifted on that date, he also said, We should keep a close eye on the number of cases. 
These things are only ever determined on the evidence. But we do need to take into account all the disbenefits of having restrictions in place and interfering with people's freedoms. Harriet Baldwin, MP for West Worcestershire and a member of the Lockdown Skeptic Covid Recovery Group of MPs said, The vaccination programme has made great progress locally and I continue to urge everyone over 18 to get vaccinated. The wide uptake and effectiveness of the vaccines means that the risks of overwhelming the NHS have been reduced and I fully support the move to end national restrictions and get back to a more normal way of life as soon as possible, taking responsibility for decisions that make sense for us and those around us. Although the legal requirements to self-isolate will remain for people who have tested positive or have been identified as a contact, Mr Johnson wants contacts who are fully vaccinated to be exempt. Wednesday, July the 7th, bridge delay puts funding at risk. Plans to build a bridge in Worcester have been put at risk after councillors decided to push back a decision by six months, jeopardising millions of pounds of funding. Worcestershire County Council's planning committee narrowly voted to defer a final decision on proposals to build the multi-million pound bridge between Goulevelt Park and the old Keepax landfill site across the River Severn. They feared it would not join up properly with walking and cycling routes around the rest of the county. The council's countryside manager, Andy McGuinness, said he had grave concerns that millions of pounds in government funding could be lost if the planning committee did not approve the new bridge. He said, Rather like the Southern Link Road, you can't build everything in one day and deal with everything in one planning application. Such an opportunity simply does not exist. The current funding we have available may not be there in a year or two's time if we defer. This is the time to carry out the work if we wish to do it. Believe me, with my experience of infrastructure, the key thing to do is get the big ticket items in place while you have the opportunity and that provides the catalyst for attracting funding to carry out the balance of the work. Other council officers warned reconfiguring the plans would take up to a year to complete. Councillor Peter Griffiths said the bridge would just be one piece of the puzzle and queried whether the city had enough paths and cycling routes to support the ambitious proposals. He said, As far as I can see, it doesn't seem to me that there is much emphasis on the whole picture. What does this add to the active travel network? I'd like to be more convinced that this bridge is contributing to the network. We have got the infrastructure to support an ambitious project like this. Councillor Griffiths said he sympathised with some of the objectors to the west of Worcester as the bridges could seem a bit meaningless to them. It is important if we have a key piece of active travel infrastructure here, then we should be looking at the wider implications and mapping them out and signing them so that people will use it, he added. The cost of the bridge alone is set to be around £5.8 million, with £4 million coming from Worcester County Council, £820,000 from Worcester City Council and £1 million from the Government's Getting Building Fund money allocated to the county. The latest planning papers said the bridge would be operational by spring 2023, but the delay in making a decision 
could push the work back by months and even years. Councillor Richard Uddle said he had a number of concerns about the bridge and believed the application was premature. We would not give permission for a highway bridge if we did not know where the roads were going to go, he said. That should be the same for a walking and cycling bridge. I understand the need to get this done as quickly as possible for funding reasons, but this should not curtail us as a planning authority into determining something in advance of our ability and willingness to be ready to determine it. What is important is the ability to get this application right. Councillor Kit Taylor said he feared the council would be building a bridge to nowhere if it was not connected to walking and cycling routes. We're going to have half a million movements on this bridge, give or take, he said. Where are they coming from and where are they going? The planning committee meets on September the 28th, but a decision may not be made until the end of the year. Thursday, July the 8th. Arcade takes step to brighter future. Traders at a Worcester shopping arcade have welcomed the owner's move to sell units in a bid to regenerate the site. The Worcester News understands half the units at Reindeer Court have been sold to bars, cafes, beauticians and tattoo artists, with reports another shop will be a wine merchant's. The shopping arcade, accessed via the Shambles, Meal Cheapen Street and New Street in Worcester City Centre, has 13 disused units marked as for sale or let. Sam McCarthy from Worcester BID last month said it needed support more than ever. But owner Reindeer Court Development Corporation Limited has confirmed it is selling individual retail units on a freehold and virtual freehold basis to individuals and new businesses rather than selling the entire shopping centre. The move has led to the properties attracting a diversity of potential buyers looking to set up new businesses who will not only be the owner of the business, but also the owner of their property. We understand some of the existing occupiers of units have taken up the opportunity to own their unit, while others are in discussions. Among the independents that have left, are Sassy Boutique, Beautiful Flowers, Little Piano Shop and Rock Follies Vintage. One of the shop windows yesterday had an under-offer sign outside, while another had a sign saying, Opening Soon, understood to be a glass and metalware shop. There are ten units occupied, including Fuel Clothes, Hanger Cafe and Ian Quartermain Jewellery. Traders at the shopping arcade have said the owner's move was potentially good as it was filling empty units and creating more footfall that will benefit them. Clint Webb, who with business owner Matt Haley runs Delhi Neighbourhood, said it had not taken up the chance to buy the individual site but believe it will be a good thing. It is a good idea, he said. Hopefully it will help fill the empty units. We have heard most of them have now been sold. It has looked scruffy, but we are hopeful it will be a regenerated area now. If our neighbours are a cafe, this could be a food area. We see people walk past and comment on the empty shops. 
We need people to walk in, support us independence. Sarah Roberts, who opened her natural definition salon on Monday, said she was hopeful for the future of Reindeer Court. A lot of independence here, and we need a mixture of businesses, she said. It is definitely a good move. The statement from the owner that came via Fisher German, which manages the site, said, Reindeer Court Development Corporation Limited have devised a creative way to divest their holding by selling the individual retail units. As a result of adopting the strategy, during the course of marketing of the units, the properties have attracted a diversity of potential buyers looking to set up new businesses who will not only will be the owner of the business, but also the owner of their property. The opportunity to acquire individual retail units within an established and historic shopping arcade has also attracted individual investors looking to acquire units, both let and vacant, within their SIPs, self-invested personal pensions. And now back over to Sally. Now we'll have a couple of articles of historical interest. Discover History, Worcester, 1651 to 2021, 370 years. Just as we get used to the new normal with COVID-19, in, in 1649, the city of Worcester began to get used to peace following seven long years of civil war. Damage, destruction and disease were slowly replaced by new buildings, fresh trade links and a country without a king. However, below this peaceful exterior, the country was still very uneasy and divided. Royalists met in secret and the gentry, many stripped of land and titles, hated this new world. Sir William Russell was heavily fined for the part he played in the wars and the fine was set at one third of the value of his estate, a large sum of £2,071. A levy of 25% was made on every man's estate in the city of Worcester too. This was because it did not resist the royalists who had occupied it. It is not known how many people died in the wars, but we do get a little insight by looking into and surviving documents. The Parliament survey for Worcestershire in 1649 mentions Humphrey, late husband to Mary, was slain in the Parliament service and she left a poor widow in misery. It is worth highlighting that Humphrey was serving, like many, in the Parliament army. The damage to the city took a long time to repair. All the houses without St Martin's Gate were burnt down and destroyed in the late unhappy war. It is estimated more than 400 houses were destroyed in the city, one-fifth of all the housing stock. To ensure the war was over once and for all, the whole country became very militaristic and parliamentarian officers watching out for uprisings. Captain Andrew Yarnton was one parliamentarian who was asked to watch for local uprising across Worcestershire. In the summer of 1650, after living in exile in European royal courts, Charles, the son of King Charles I, returned to Britain. His advisers had encouraged him to land in Scotland 
and seek revenge on his father's murders. This would involve a march on London and conclude with a restored Stuart monarchy, a bold plan that would require a large field army and an effective supply train. News would have reached Worcester slowly and it was thought that the parliamentarians would destroy this uprising before Charles had time to recruit an army to his cause. Cromwell fought and defeated a new Scottish army at Dunbar on September 3rd, 1650. Accounts vary, but the Royalists seem to have lost over 4,000 men, with many prisoners being marched to Durham. Archaeologists found a mass grave near Durham Cathedral in 2015. Evidence showed these men to have been Scottish prisoners of war from 1650. Following this Scottish battle, Cromwell occupied Scotland and began massing a force to complete what he had started at Dunbar, the complete annihilation of this new Royalist force before it could march south. The Royalists moved to Stirling and the Parliamentarians took Edinburgh and the nearby port of Leith. The capture of the port of Leith would mean reinforcements and supplies could be moved to Scotland from London, faster than marching the length of the country. This angered Charles, who had hoped Leslie, his commander, would hold on to these strategically important locations. The events in Scotland over 300 miles away were of no real interest to the weavers and spinners of the city of Worcester. They had seen what Cromwell and the new model army could do and thought this outbreak of further civil war would remain in Scotland. This year, Discover History will explain the events 370 years ago as we move towards the anniversary of the Battle of Worcester in September. Tours of the battlefield and Civil War-themed walking tours of the city centre are available all the year round for groups and individuals. More details at discover-history.co.uk If you visit the Civil War story displays at the Commandery Museum and wander through to the Royalists' room, you will see an impressive pewter flagon. Dated to the 17th century, it is currently on loan to the Commandery from St Mary's Church in Ripple, Gloucestershire, and its origins have been a source of mystery for researchers. The flagon was discovered in a large chest in the south transept of St Mary's, which has been used as the vestry since the mid-19th century. When opened, the chest found to be crammed full of Bibles, music, old records and many other things, including a 13th century censer, used to burn incense, which is now in Worcester Cathedral. No one at the time seemed to know anything about the flagon, nor how it had come to be in Ripple Church, until research was done in the archives. The Victoria County History, the documented history of every county in England, started in Queen Victoria's name in 1899, features an entry for Ripple and the storage of the flagon. It also appears in a Worcester Herald article in 1923, written by A. Stroller. Rabina Rand, who is researching the history of Ripple Church, says, One possibility is that it was given by Rector Fleetwood, 
1676 to 1705. His father was given the bishopric of Worcester by King Charles II in 1675 for services rendered over many years. Bishop Fleetwood rebuilt Hartleby Castle, so another possibility is that Ripple needed a flagon in or after 1676 and there was a spare at Hartlebury. If this is the case, the museum's Worcestershire links with this flagon are even stronger as Worcestershire County Museum is housed within a wing of Hartlebury Castle. Large flagons like this were often used in churches to hold the communion wine which was consecrated in the flagon. It was then used to fill the chalice to share wine with the congregation. The National Association of Decorative and Fine Arts Societies produced a report of the contents of Ripple Church in 1997 in which the flagon was described in detail. Flat, circular, stepped lid with twin-lobed thumbpiece and pear-shaped decoration on mounting. Four marks are recorded on top of the lid, which is very worn. Tall cylindrical body with boldly cast lip. Hollow tapering scroll handle with simple shield-shaped finial. See this beautiful flagon currently on display at the Commandery in the Civil War Story Exhibition, an interactive experience that takes visitors back over 350 years into a murky, conflicted 17th century Worcester where you can experience life as a soldier, test your skills at battle strategy and come face to face with Oliver Cromwell. The Commandery also has a beautiful garden with a new nature play area for children to explore and delicious treats available from Commandery Coffee. Open Tuesday to Saturday, 10am to 5pm and Sundays 11am to 3pm. For more information, visit museumsworcestershire.org.uk Organisers of the city's summer elephant trail are thanking county knitters and stitchers for making a big difference for local hospice care. Worcester's Big Parade, a wild in art event being brought to the city by St Richard's Hospice, has been encouraging local residents to handcraft elephants to support the project and has been staggered by the response. Sarah Matthews, business development manager for the hospice, said... When we called upon the county's keen knitters, stitchers and elephant lovers to get making during the winter lockdown, we knew our wonderful community would get behind us. But the response has been something else. Incredibly, we have received more than 3,000 cute, cuddly and colourful elephants which will be available in our parade shop for a donation towards our care. It is truly humbling to see the love and care that's gone into them with each and every elephant and will help make a difference for patients living with serious progressive illnesses and their loved ones too. Hospice supporter Gemma Ward, who's been coordinating a Facebook group of around 150 makers called Join the Stampede, has also been helping the hospice organise their mammoth hall. She said... After my own cancer diagnosis and recovery, 
I know firsthand how important the work of St Richard's is. It seems that in Worcester, everyone knows someone who the hospice has helped, so it seemed natural for me to want to contribute. I may not be up to running marathons or skydiving, but I can knit. Along with hundreds of others, I have done what we can. We have knitted, crocheted and sewn to show our support and to let people of all ages have a memento of the parade. We have used time at home to our advantage and used it to support our local hospice in the hope that their good work may continue for many years to come. Ms Matthews added, We are so grateful to Gemma and hundreds of others in the community who have been together to make this mammoth knitted herd. One of our key aims of the parade is to help the city create lasting memories this summer and now trailgoers can take home those gorgeous lasting mementos too. Anyone with handcrafted elephants to donate can still do so up until August. Finished elephants can be dropped to the Worcester's big parade shop at 57A Broad Street. In Worcester, seven days a week, from Tuesday, July the 13th, between 10am and 4pm. Alternatively, elephants can be posted or dropped in Sarah Matthews' fundraising department, St Richard's Hospice, Wildwood Drive, WR5, 2QT. The hospice is asking senders to include their contact details inside the packaging so each maker can be thanked. The parade of elephant sculptures will arrive in Worcester for eight weeks on Tuesday, July the 13th. A spectacular showcase of 66 elephant sculptures, large and small, will grace city streets and open spaces to form a free open-air trail. Once the trail has ended, there will be a final chance to see all of the sculptures together before the large elephants are auctioned to raise money for St Richard's Hospice. You can follow Worcester's Big Parade at www.facebook.com slash Worcester's Big Parade. Work on a project to convert a city centre listed building into 25 flats for the homeless has been completed. And Worcester Municipal Charities said such is the demand for the flats, they have already been let out. The conversion of the offices in Shaw Street, at a cost of more than £2 million, came after the probation service left in 2019 and moved to Elgar House at Shrub Hill. The charity trustees were faced with a huge rent loss and an empty building no one wanted so decided to turn it into flats for the homeless. Bankrolled by grant funding of £1 million from Home England, the work has been completed with the help of city builders, D&S contractors, supervised by Worcester architects Lett and Sweetland. Worcester MP Robin Walker and City Mayor Councillor Stephen Hodgson jointly unveiled a plaque commemorating the opening of the flats at the building, which has been renamed Stillingfield House to commemorate the work of Worcester Bishop Edward Stillingfleet. Bishop Stillingfleet single-handedly stopped the old Worcester Corporation of Freemen from stealing Worcester Municipal Charities' money in the 1650s, which they used to make gifts to King Charles and the Queen and to pay military bills, including uniforms for the King's lifeguards. 
The building was also blessed by Stillingfleet's successor, Dr John Inge, at the launch event. Chairman Paul Griffith said, The charity trustees are delighted to have found a new investment policy that fits in perfectly with its own charitable objectives of helping the poor whilst generating a reasonable return at a time when returns on capital are low and flats for the single homeless are in very short supply. Hooked is crowned the Worcester News Best Chip Shop for 2021. So we went along to see what all the fuss was about. The votes are in, counted, and with more than a 1,000 for Hooked in Broadway Grove, St John's, the popular chippy was crowned Worcester News Best Chip Shop 2021 earlier this week. We decided to see for ourselves, and on Saturday afternoon we visited the chip shop. We went along with St John's County Councillor Richard Udall to try the famous chips. The location of the chip shop is perfect, with an abundance of free parking making it accessible for all. Despite only having been open for half an hour when we arrived, customers were queuing outside. Always a good sign and proving just how popular the local fish bar is in the city. The staff are friendly and welcoming, even taking the time to compliment my nails whilst being speedy and attentive. Within seconds, a traditional cone of fresh steaming chips were in my hands. Richard and I both agreed they were excellent chips with plenty of salt and vinegar and a very generous portion for the £1.10p we paid. Richard said, In a very short time, Hooked has won a lot of local praise and support. They serve a quality product with good customer service and are now trading as an essential part of the local community. I am so pleased and proud they have won such an important award. Nothing but the best is good enough for St John's. Even Richard's beloved dog, Murphy, gave his seal of approval. Luca Nicodemo, who runs the Broadway Grove, takeaway, with fiancée Leah, said staff were overwhelmed and over the moon when they were told that they had won the award. It is great news. We are really happy, he said. We've only been here less than a year and the community has really welcomed us with open arms. It is great to have been supported by the community. We just want to say thank you. To everyone. Leah said, We have been super busy since the Worcester News crowned us winners. People have been queuing round the block. It's fantastic. Have you been to the chippy yet? We're sure once you visited, you'll be hooked. Dozens of disgruntled patients have taken to Facebook to complain about this GP service provision in the city. Local GP Dr Jason Seawoodery explained to the Worcester News why people may be struggling to get appointments, receiving a strong reaction online. Dr Seawoodery said restrictions on NHS services due to COVID-19 throughout the pandemic was having a profound effect on GP services. But he wanted to reassure patients that everything was being done to sort out the issues with appointments. The number of calls to surgeries are said to have increased significantly in recent months, but with coronavirus cases rising and more people mixing due to the relaxing of lockdown rules, GP surgeries are still having to take extra precautions to limit the spread of infections. 
The Clinical Commissioning Group said 59% of all patients are seen for an appointment on the day they call. Dr. C. Woodery said, I fully understand and share the frustrations of patients struggling to get a GP appointment. Commentators on our Facebook page, however, say this sounds like excuses. Corinne Edwards said, Looks like the excuses given in the article aren't quite enough there, Doc. You didn't explain why most surgeries in the city are not doing any face-to-face appointments. How do you get a five-year-old to explain their symptoms over the phone or someone with an anxiety that struggles to make a phone call? Van der Passmore said, I ring to make an appointment to be told by the receptionist you will have to fill in an online form. I fill in the online form, receive confirmation and told they will be in touch in 48 hours. 48 hours later I receive a text to say I have a telephone appointment in three days' time. It's just ridiculous and infuriating. Rachel Stanley said, The situation is really bad at the moment. I understand that GPs are often struggling. However, I really think more face-to-face appointments should be available. All the hospital staff have been working face-to-face with patients since the first lockdown. Yet GPs continue to hide in their offices. People go to A&E when they really should be seeing a GP. People can't get GP appointments, so they go to A&E out of desperation, especially since the walk-in centre closed. I had a GP appointment over the phone for a condition that causes me a lot of pain, only to be fobbed off. I had to go through occupational health at work, to get the treatment I needed. A spokesperson for NHS Herefordshire and Worcestershire CCG said, GP practices across Worcestershire have continued to deliver care to their patients throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, including providing face-to-face appointments. While remote consultation will continue to be an important element of delivering primary care services for the future, In April this year, more than half of all GP appointments were face-to-face. More than 59% of all patients being booked in for an appointment are seen within one day, with urgent same-day appointments available for those patients who need them. Travellers who set up camp on a rugby playing field have caused vandalism and damage to the site. Staff at Worcester Rugby football club said there'd been plenty of damage and expect to face large bills for the clean-up, security and legal fees. They appealed for the community's help in restoring the site and donations once the travellers move on. It is believed a small number of caravans arrived at the fields on Offerton Lane Hindlip and then were followed by several more caravans who went past the car park's entrance barrier. Police have instructed the travellers to leave immediately and the club has engaged specialist bailiffs. A statement from Worcester Rugby Club claimed there have been vandalism to the site and shared pictures of graffiti and a smashed shelter. They are hoping once the caravans leave the fields the community will pull together to help to clean up the site. 
The club said, We are urgently dealing with this situation in the proper manner with assistance of the police and our solicitors. Please do not consider any independent or direct action. We will provide updates as and when we can. We know already we will need a clean-up party when we finally get them out. Thank you for your support. The club has asked for people to stay away from the site while the caravans remain. The city's former fire station will be transformed into luxury apartments and a food hall. Artists' impressions show how the building in the city's Copenhagen Street will change into 28 luxury apartments and an artisan food hall and wine shop were approved earlier this month. Malvern-based developer Guthrie Roberts is behind the multi-million pound plans to convert the former fire station into apartments with Richard Everton, owner of Bottles in New Street, in charge of the new food hall and wine shop. The food hall is set to include crepes and pastries, tapas, rotisserie chicken, a delicatessen and a large selection of beer and wine. Mr Everton said he was aiming to be open by the end of the year. The new place will be a brand new wine shop and a big food court especially focusing on local producers and local chefs who want to take concessions in there, he said. We'll have wine and beer dispensers so you can have a glass of wine or buy a wine from the shop and walk around and get a pizza or rotisserie chicken or something like that. We'll also have a big outdoor seating area too and we have plans to hold tasting and other events. We just want to bring an iconic city centre building back into use because it has been empty for seven years. We want to try and give the opportunity to local and independent producers rather than just handing it over to the big chains and brands. It just makes a lot of sense. Ben Roberts, Managing Director of Guthley Roberts, said, We have some inspiring plans to, to, to develop the site into a mix of residential and commercial use. Our plans include approximately 28 luxury contemporary apartments, a mix of one, two and three beds, to provide options for a broad range of buyers. We intend to have an exciting commercial unit on the ground floor and there will be a novel city garden for residents, external walkways, a courtyard for private car parking and luxurious interiors. The company will maintain the external facade of the building, including the symbolic fire station entrance bays. The building, which has been left empty since fire chiefs relocated in 2015, was built between 1939 and 41 by Percy Thomas, who designed the former police station opposite. Healthwatch Worcestershire, the independent champion for those who use local health and social care services, want to hear from as many people as possible to help identify issues and concerns and advise on improvements to services. Healthwatch also helps people find out about local health and social care services available. They are particularly keen to hear about the impact the pandemic has had on access to NHS screening programmes. More information about who should be invited for screening and when 
can be found on the NHS website www.nhs.uk. You can share your experiences of screening or report any experience of health and social care services anonymously via the Tell Us page of the website www.healthwatchworcestershire.co.uk or by calling 01386 or emailing info at healthwatchworcestershire.co.uk The parts of the city which have the biggest carbon footprints have been revealed. Several parts of Worcester have been singled out as having massive carbon footprints on a new map which grades each area for the amount of pollution they create on average per person. Three neighbourhoods have produced so many greenhouse gases on average that they are among some of the biggest polluters in the country. The biggest carbon footprint was found on the edge of the city around the northeastern part of Warnden Villages and part of the industrial estate around Junction 6 of the M5. The map was created using various government statistics and looks at energy consumption, heating, flights, car and public transport usage and consumption of goods amongst others with the lowest carbon footprints receiving an A grade all up to the biggest polluters which get an F grade. The area was the only in the city to be given an F grade and was singled out for car and van usage, the number of flights taken and the consumption of goods and services. Two out of three of the city's F plus grade neighbourhoods, which means they are in the worst 10% of neighbourhoods in the country, with the biggest carbon footprints, were in St Peter's. Every person in the first neighbourhood, which includes homes from Wheatfield Avenue off Bath Road to the north right down to the Southern Length Road, and the second on the eastern side of St Peter's, which combines home from, homes from Crook Barrow Way upwards until they meet Batten Hall, were creating an average of 12,600 units of kilograms of carbon dioxide equivalent almost 350% higher than the government's 2023 target. The target of 2,849 kilograms of carbon dioxide equivalent is intended to provide an indication of how the country must go in the next 10 years if it is to have any chance of reaching net zero by 2050. Both areas in St Peter's were singled out for high car usage and the number of flights, as well as consumption of goods. Worcester's carbon footprint is very slightly below the UK average of 7,852.5 kilograms of carbon dioxide equivalent. According to the map, the neighbourhood with the smallest carbon footprint in Worcester is Ronxwood, and at an average of 3,910 
kilograms of carbon dioxide equivalent per person is closest to reaching the government's 2023 target. A Worcestershire primary teacher who adopted an orphan from Uganda is raising money in a desperate bid to help get her partner and his children to the UK. Emily Lata is back in Lysinton after spending five years in Uganda to complete a lengthy adoption process of an orphan named Adam. Miss Lata, aged 29, first met her son in 2014 when she cared for him while volunteering as an or- at an orphanage in Africa. She said it was love at first sight, and although she admits caring for the newborn was daunting, she extended her two-month trip to seven months so she could stay with him, and in 2016 moved to Uganda permanently so she could adopt him. That is when she met her partner, Josh, who has three children of his own. His cousins, George, six, Tally, five, and James, two, after his elderly parents struggled to cope. She said, in August 2016, I moved back to Uganda and 23 months old Adam came running towards me when he saw me and it was overwhelming to hold him in my arms again. A few weeks later, we moved into rented house and I got a job at a local school. I met Josh, a security guard, via the children's home and we started a relationship. He was incredibly kind, brilliant with Adam and he moved in with us that October. His cousins moved in with us two years later. Miss Larter has returned to the UK and wants to bring Josh and the three children over to live with her and Adam. She said by 2020, Adam's visa and passport were sorted so I could bring him home and start the process of adopting him in the UK. Though I was excited, I felt sad to leave Josh and his cousins, but I knew that for us to have a decent life and be together in the future, we had to go. Miss Larter is fundraising to... cover the cost of reuniting her family and hopes to raise £30,000. While I try to find this money to bring Josh and the children here while also going through three more adoption processes, our family is apart, she said. The kids just don't understand. After a FaceTime call the other day, Josh told me George was in tears, saying he wants to be in England with Mummy. Josh also said, whenever someone knocks at the gate... The kids start running around screaming our names and they always think that we've returned. I won't give up until we're reunited. You can donate to the cause at uk.gofundme.com forward slash f forward slash help hyphen us hyphen keep hyphen our hyphen family hyphen together hyphen. In 2011, the mayor of Worcester signed a twinning agreement with Uckmerg, a town in Lithuania. In May of this year, the then mayor of Worcester, Councillor Joe Hodges, met virtually with the mayor of Uckmerg, Rolandus Janikas, to celebrate the 10th anniversary of this twinning. Joe spoke about the warmth and kindness shown to her when she went to their summer festival. She recalled going to a school for their last bell ceremony, the final assembly for 18-year-old students. Joe was asked to talk to the students in the school hall. They all understood English and hung on her every word. The Lithuanian mayor said how much he appreciates the annual invitations to our Christmas fair. 
the presence of Uckmerg ladies selling their handmade products in our high street is the way many Worcester people know about our Lithuanian twin town. The ladies smile or sing to passers-by and their products are very popular. Rolandus went on to present Terry Coles, the Twinning Association's Uckmerg Liaison Officer, with the Uckmerg Mayor's Special Award for the active promotion of cooperation between Uckmerg and Worcester. He made some very complimentary comments about Terry and said he would put the actual award, a badge and ribbon, in the post. Terry spoke about the Lithuanian ambassador making the initial contact with Uckmerg, the ambassador's hometown, and recalled many productive visits to the town over the years, helping in schools and meeting many delightful and hospitable people. The meeting ended with the Uckmerg mayor presenting the city of Worcester with a gift to, to commemorate our 400-year-old charter. He played us a very unusual song about hope and energy, performed by a local award-winning ladies' choir. A Worcester Undertakers is looking to help fight climate change by providing eco-funerals. Jackson Family Funeral Directors said funerals have a damaging and long-lasting impact on the environment and has launched a new service to combat this. For every ceremony they conduct, the company will plant a tree to offset the carbon footprint of the occasion. Managing Director Matthew Jackson said, Climate change is very real. We are fast approaching a tipping point where change will be irreversible. As a business owner and a family man with two small children, I want to do as much as possible to leave a better planet for them. He continued, Tree planting for families is just the beginning of changes to the environmental impact left behind from several families across England and Wales, but particularly Worcestershire. By planting a tree, we are helping families remember their loved one whilst reducing the environmental cost of the funeral. Jackson's began focusing on reducing its carbon footprint earlier this year as a reaction to government plans to reduce greenhouse gases by 78% by 2035. The company plans to go one better by becoming fully carbon neutral by 2025, adding that not enough people are aware of just how damaging funerals can be. The average cremation ceremony produces 240 to 290 kilograms of carbon. However, tr a tree can offset this, releasing at least 300 kilograms across its lifetime. The company hopes to create a virtual memorial forest in memory of lost loved ones, and for each tree planted, the family will receive a certificate detailing location and species. To provide this new service, Jackson's has partnered with eTrees, which is dedicated to planting trees to combat rising carbon emissions. A spokesperson said, The time to act is now. The UK government has set ambitious carbon reduction targets which will require a change of thinking in both the business community and people's personal choices. Jackson's has recognised that regardless of whether a funeral is a burial or a cremation, they have a long-term impact on the environment. 
The marketing and product manager of a medical equipment firm will set out on a gruelling four-day cycling challenge hoping to raise £2,000 for Acorns Children's Hospice. Greg Whelan is UK marketing and product manager at Apex Medical Limited, whose head office is in Worcester, and tomorrow, Saturday July the 3rd, sets out on his challenge in the Scottish Highlands. The Scotland Cycle Challenge takes place over 500 miles with well over 25,000 feet of elevation. Beginning in Inverness, the first day will see Greg attempt to cycle across Scotland to Applecross on the west coast. Day two heads north to Ullapool and the following day the challenges reach Tong on the north coast before swinging east and south and eventual return to Inverness. Greg said, I'm incredibly proud to be a supporter of Acorns Children's Hospice. My recent involvement with Acorns has inspired me to take all the positives and kindness showed towards me during my childhood and to do all I can to help children suffering life-limiting illness and to support their families through challenges such as this. For many of us, their daily challenges are unimaginable. In being the best I can be, I want to do all I can to help and support Acorns and the children of families who rely on the wonderful support of Acorns Children's Hospice. Greg has so far raised 35% of his £2,000 target. All of the Apex employees are eager to get involved in fundraising, and already sales director Ivan Thompson has raised £95 with his Kilimanjaro run. Olivia Kaluna, Partnerships Fundraising Manager at Acorn, said, We're thrilled that Apex Medical Limited have chosen to support Acorns. Our work has never been more needed as it has been since the start of the pandemic, as we are supporting families who are dealing with a raft of challenges. It's work that can only continue thanks to fundraising initiatives from the local community and businesses like Apex Medical. So everyone at Acorns is hugely grateful and we wish them all the best on their cycle challenge. And events will be taken on by Apex and employees to help raise funds to support Acorns. To help reach the goal, donations can be made at www.justgiving.com forward slash fundraising forward slash Apex hyphen medical hyphen UK. The county's newest cycling and footbridge has opened officially. The Broomhall Way footbridge, which offers a crossing over the A440 Southern Link Road in Worcester, is fully open for pedestrians and cyclists. It provides a link between the new commercial and housing development on the south of the A440 to Power Park in St Peter's on the north. Councillor Alan Amos, Cabinet Member for Highways and Transport for Worcester County Council said, This is another major milestone moment on the Southern Link Road scheme, with yet more infrastructure now in place to improve walking and cycling connectivity. This bridge, alongside two further bridges, a new underpass and a much wider shared walking and cycle path between the Ketch Roundabout and Poet Roundabout, will vastly improve the walking and cycling routes in the area. 
This is in addition to the scheme providing a dual carriageway for traffic from the M5 to Poet Roundabout. The main span of the bridge was lifted into place in December 2020 and since then further works have taken place on the construction of approach ramps and wider connection to the existing highway networks on both sides of the road. The link on the southern side of the road has been installed by the developer St Modwan who are behind the commercial and residential development. This is on a temporary alignment which will be revised once other work in the area has been completed. Along with erasing the footpaths in Power Park above the area that floods frequently, other works include the installation of a land drainage system, repositioning of a football pitch and landscaping. Brummel Way footbridge is one of four crossings being installed as part of the wider Southern Link Road scheme. Major work to convert the landmark former home of the city's YMCA into student flats has finally started after years of delays. The listed building in Henwick Road, which was home to Worcester's YMCA until 2019, will be converted into 163 student apartments as part of multi-million pound plans by Space Developments. Whether the work will ever get started has been the subject of debate since plans to convert the building into student flats were approved in 2018. The work was originally expected to have finished in time for the start of the last academic year and the building was put back up for sale in 2019 with an almost £3 million asking price. As part of the redevelopment, the original buildings, which are Grade 2 listed, with impressive Gothic architectural features, will be kept and refurbished to provide 91 student beds and an accommodation building will be also built within the grounds to provide another 72 rooms. The work is expected to be finished in time for the start of the new academic year in September 2022. Tim Edgehill from Space Development said, We are very excited to be delivering this scheme and regenerating this historic building. The development will, prov will provide a unique and attractive range of rooms and flats for students and a close and social community in which students can live, work and enjoy their time in Worcester. The redevelopment of this site as a student accommodation after its prior history as an orphanage and latterly YMCA accommodation seems like the perfect new chapter for this development. We want to create an inclusive place where residents feel part of a community where they belong and can grow and thrive, making lifelong friends. Originally an orphanage, the building was later occupied by the YMCA for more than 40 years. And that ends our roundup of the news, um, so we will follow with some sport. Masters winner. Worcestershire Masters' stunning final day sees Dean crowned the champion of the Vale. Joe Dean has become the first winner of the GLAL UK Worcestershire Masters of the Vale Golf and Country Club by three shots for his first victory on the PGA Euro Pro Tour. Dean of Worksop Golf Club went into the day with a share of the lead at nine under a before a flawless final day, 66-6, sealed a comfortable win in the end. Dean never looked phased on a day that ebbed and flowed 
always remaining on top of the pile, even if he was pushed at several points throughout. In 2018, Dean moved up to the Challenge Tour through the Tour's top five, but what came without a win, so he was relieved to get his first. It was great to get the top five in 2018, especially without winning, but it also leaves a little area of doubt in your mind that you are ever going to cross that line. So to do it now, it's a massive move forwards. Me and Sam Locke were going backward and forwards to start with, and then I saw after the first six that Ben Hutchinson had made a few birdies as well. To be honest, I didn't look at the leaderboard the whole way round. I saw Dermot McIlroy. The only thing I saw was him holding a, bir- holding a birdie putt on 17. I'm so glad I didn't look at any leaderboards just to keep my mind at rest and focus on my process. Going into the final round, Dean wasn't happy with his short game. Something he felt got better. The putter came back. The short game came back. A little bit this week and it was good enough. I might have a few beverages when I get home. Dermot McIlroy, Ballymena Golf Club, was one of those pushing Dean all the way, signing for the joint best rounder of the week at 8 under for a 64 and 12 under total. The Northern Irishman was at 9 under for the day until a bogey on the 18th, meaning he took a share of the spoils and tied second with Tom Slotman, Trinifold Sports, Ben Hutchinson, Howley Hall Golf Club and Sam Locke, Paul Lowry Golf Centre. David Wicks, Sedliscombe Golf Club, showed resolve for his third top 15 finish, this time tied sixth with Ryan Brooks, Whittington Heath Golf Club. The top 10 was rounded out by James Fraser, McKinnon's Peninsula, Jack Hawksby, Millbrook Golf Club, Chris McLean, Baltimore Golf Club and Jeff Wright's Forays Golf Club. Congratulations to Joe. Rapids slip up in top four chase. Worcestershire Rapids' top four Vitality Blast hopes were dealt a blow last night after they came up short in their run chase by 34 runs at Old Trafford to Lancashire Lightning. With four games remaining in the group stages, there is still hope for the Rapids, who are now joined on 10 points by the Lightning, one point outside the top four. Rapids overseas duo Ish Sudi and Ben Dwarshaus impressed with the ball for the Rapids, but Lancashire still managed a par score of 159 for six. With a career-best four for 16, left-arm spinner Tom Hartley was the key performer for the Lightning in mid-innings. With Saqib Mahmood, 4 for 25, inflicting the early and late breakthroughs. Captain Ben Cox hit a bright and breezy 36, but the Rapids could not sustain the necessary pace and were dismissed for 125 in 18.3 overs. Lancashire opted to bat first, and openers Finn Allen and Keaton Jennings, the latter with 34, shared a streaky 52 inside the power play. Ed Barnard tipped a Jennings pull for six off Dylan Pennington in the second over before three miscued aerial shots narrowly evaded fielders. 
but pace off prospered for the rapids, who prevented a boundary for 45 balls between the 8th and the 15th overs. New Zealand leg spinner Ish Sodi returned one for 24 from four, removing Jennings, and overseas colleague Ben Dwarshouse and Pennington struck twice apiece. Australian left-arm seamer Dwarshouse had Stephen Croft caught behind and Luke Wells caught at long on in the 17th over, leaving the Lightning 122 for six. But Busy Jones and former rapid low-knee Luke Wood hit late sixes as 30 runs came off the last two overs, including 20 off the last from Charlie Morris. Lancashire built on that momentum as Worcestershire fell to 36 for three in the sixth over. Saqib Mahmood and Brett Oliveira brilliantly caught low down at cover by Wells in the second over, a wicket maiden, before getting Jake Libby caught off a miscube in the fifth. Hartley then bowled Darrell Mitchell, but his key contribution came with the tenth over's first two balls as he had Ricky Wessels caught and bowled and Ross Whiteley LBW, leaving the visitors on 59 for five. He later had Ed Barnard caught at deep square leg before Ben Cox's meaty 36 briefly threatened a revival, but it was game over when he was bowled by Matthew Parkinson in the 16th, 106 for seven. Mahmood then yorked Sodi and Morris in the penultimate over to finish Rapids off. Worcester City have confirmed that goalkeeper Dan Jezef has signed a new deal with the club for the 2021-22 season. Jezef, a favourite amongst the City supporters, has appeared 60 times for the club over the last three seasons and has been a crucial player over that time and has often been City's saviour. The shot-stopper played a crucial role in City's 2-1 pre-season win over Leamington last night with a number of key saves. Manager Tim Harris expressed his joy at the signing of Jezef for another season. Dan is someone who I've worked with before, he said. He is an extremely good goalkeeper and we are delighted he has agreed to stay on for next season. On his performance last night, Dan pulled off three fantastic saves. They were incredible and the scoreboard would have looked a lot different if it had not been for him. Warriors duo set for Eagles Challenge. Worcester Warriors, Ollie Lawrence and Ted Hill, have been named in the England 23-man squad to face the USA at Twickenham this Sunday. Both were due to play in the A-team with Scotland last weekend, but the fixture was cancelled due to a Covid outbreak in the Scottish camp. Head coach Eddie Jones has picked centre Lawrence to start at outside centre, whilst Worcester captain Hill looks set to finally add to his one previous senior England cap, after being named among their replacements. Eight players are set to make their England debuts this Sunday, including recent Gallagher Premiership champion Marcus Smith. The team will be captained by Gloucester Rugby's Lewis Ludlow. Jones said, Over the past three weeks, our biggest message to the players is what an opportunity this is to show what they can do and make their mark. 
They've applied themselves as a group and worked very hard individually during this camp to reach their personal bests. Now it's all about coming together as a team, gelling and putting in a good performance. England versus USA is live on Channel 4, 1.30pm kickoff. So that is the end of our contribution for this week. Thank you very much for listening. And it just remains for me and Ian to say, keep safe and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye. Nigel Ricketts passed away on the 5th of June. A graveside service will take place at Hallow Churchyard on Tuesday the 13th of July at 12.30. The funeral cortege will leave Nigel's home at 12 noon and Nigel will travel through the village by tractor and trailer. No flowers by request, please. Donations, if desired, for the ongoing care of Nigel's animals may be left at the service or sent care of Bedwardine Funeral Services. Please make any cheques payable to Miss K. Lewis. Michael Monk died June the 20th. His funeral will take place at the Church of Jesus Christ and the Latter-day Saints on Friday the 9th of July. Family flowers only, please, but donations, if desired, for the Alzheimer's Society may be sent care of F.W. Spilsbury Funeral Directors, Malvern. Iris Noreen Tandy on June the 22nd. Her funeral service is at Pinvin Church on July the 20th at 12 noon, followed by cremation at Worcester Crematorium. Family flowers only, please, and donations for Pinvin Church may be sent care of E. Hill and Son Funeral Directors, Pershaw. Mavis Smith on June the 22nd. Family flowers only, please. Inquiries and donations for Cancer Research UK or the MS Society may be made through E. Hill and Son Funeral Directors, Pershaw. And Roy William Long on the 25th of June. Service to be held at Worcester Crematorium the 16th of July at 10 o'clock. We kindly request no flowers, but donations, if desired, for the RSPCA can be left at the crematorium or sent care of Jackson Family Funeral Directors, Worcester. And we send our thoughts and prayers to all those bereaved at this very difficult time.